If I asked you to name one book published within the last few years that's really changed how product teams address sticky challenges, there's a good chance that Jake Knapp's Sprint would be at the top of your list. The design sprint has become a tool for teams and companies and organizations as wide-ranging as Prudential, the United Nations, and the British Museum. Given the impact of Sprint, we were delighted to be able to get Jake on the show and dig into some questions that we're curious about since reading the book, like the relationship between design thinking and the Sprint process, how the design Sprint process can work in harmony with an agile development cycle, and when not to use design sprints. Jake also gives us a sneak peek at the next book that he's working on. So grab your copy of Sprint and get ready for some great stories and insights from Jake Knapp. Thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Jake Knapp, author of the best-selling book, Sprint, and self-proclaimed time dork. Welcome to the Design Better podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. And we want to talk about why you're a time dork, but we'll get to that soon enough. We're curious, uh, tell us where the Sprint idea started. It's uh, clearly a, an idea that's taken over the design industry Every company that we visit, every design leader we talk to, we hear about design sprints being used every day, bringing a lot of people into the design process. But where did the design sprint come from? Well, that's that's cool that you're hearing that. Because, I mean, and I think the reality is that like many things, like pretty much everything, it, it was stolen from, from other things that already existed. And I, you know... Throughout my career as a designer, saw lots of pieces of things that worked well for design process, things that worked well for product teams, for engineering teams. And I started to notice things that worked well for myself as an, you know, an individual contributor, as a team lead. And the design sprint process was kind of a, you know, it's it's a combination, it's a collection of things that that work well turned into a recipe. The idea though that's probably unique about it is this idea of having the same recipe that you use over and over again. And that idea really came from looking at my own work as a designer at Google and at Microsoft and noticing that the best work came in these short bursts and trying to figure out what were the common elements in those bursts and then trying to think, 
yeah, is there any way that I could reproduce those moments with a whole team of people and do it, you know, anytime that we needed to start a project, anytime we needed to do something important. And so it's, it was kind of a, specifically a couple of projects on one on Gmail and one on the 20% project that became Google Hangouts, where I noticed, man, in that one week of time, we got so much done. We did all of this formative work. And uh, how, could I, how could I reproduce that? So, Jake, um, at the, the classes I teach at Stanford and, and our, the students in our program, we talk a lot about design thinking and the, the, the design thinking toolkit. And um, I think the evolution that the sprint took with some of the concepts of design thinking is really interesting. Could, could you talk a little bit about that relationship between design thinking and sprints? For sure. Yeah. And obviously design thinking is, is when I talk about stealing ideas for the design sprint, you know, a bulk of those come from design thinking. They came from things I had read, you know, from IDEO, things that I had experienced firsthand from former designers from IDEO who were at Google. And what I had noticed in my own time at Google was that there were, there were basically things about it that, that re, in my mind, required a lot of expertise. They required, in order to work well, maybe a design agency or maybe you know expert designers to do design thinking and have it come off really, really well. And it's part of the reason why a place like IDEO is so successful because they have these amazingly talented experienced folks who work there. And when I was working with software engineers, you know, credibly talented and experienced in their own in their own right, but not in design, I couldn't get the same results. I wasn't able to have a team like that do the same kind of design thinking exercises and then end up with a new idea that was better than the one that they could come up with on their own. And as I started to notice things like that where there were there were kind of tweaks that needed to be made for the realities of a, a diverse team of folks who have you know different skill sets, who work in different roles, working together. That's where I started this idea of like a checklist or a recipe where you could say, okay, how do we tweak that interaction? How do we kind of optimize that piece so it works for everyone so that this piece builds on that piece and builds on that piece so that you know I don't have to make it up each time or decide which toolkit I'm going to use but the whole thing will work each and every time, even if somebody's coming in totally cold to this, has no background in, in design at all, or, or you know, especially in design thinking. So that's kind of the, that's probably where some of the differences start to come in or just those, those tweaks on top, but it obviously comes from the exact same foundation. The design sprint process, as you're describing, there's a, there's a recipe or a, a process that, that can be followed um, so you can get a lot of people involved, repeat uh, that process, and, and be proactive. Um, can't help but draw some comparisons with Agile and the way that engineers think about their process and um, being very focused on speed and moving quickly, which clearly that's uh, one of the, the key values of, of a sprint. Can you talk a bit about how um, sprints as they are today, uh, how that connects to agile development, if at all? Yeah, for sure. And of course, this idea, even the phrase sprint, that's that's kind of stolen from, from agile as well. But I worked with teams at Microsoft and at Google, to a lesser degree at Google, who were using agile. And I saw a lot of benefit to it because it provided a structure that 
in some cases wasn't there otherwise for an engineering process. And it also provides a way for teams to think about moving fast. It gives them a, a framework and a philosophy for moving fast. But I also saw a big challenge with Agile, which was that in my experience, Agile teams that I've worked with and seen, and I'm sure this isn't true across the board, but I have seen a lot of teams, you know, my experience through Google Ventures, I had the chance to see a lot of teams. Teams who were using Agile are usually extremely efficient and fast at engineering. They move really fast at building things. They, they, they go, 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 go. But they often really struggle to know which direction to point that really fast engine at. And so this engineering almost beast just kind of sometimes takes over. It wants to build something right now. And we can't wait. We can't wait to get it right. We, just, we have to go. We have to go. And there's this this feeling where the rest of the team, the product and the design teams will become sort of subservient to this need to build because we can build so fast, we're so efficient. And it actually become, in my opinion, a big problem. So part of the idea with the design sprint, you know, part of it was branding. I knew if I called this thing a design sprint that it would sound appealing to teams who otherwise thought of design as this bottleneck, this thing that slowed, slowed things down. But I also figured that if you could start in that way, if you had an efficient engineering team, if you start with a design sprint or two or three, which is really a better way to go, then you're going to have something you have confidence in and you're going to be able to give that engineering team something to, to build that's, that's worthwhile. You're not just going to be constantly trying to catch up. So it's partly a, a sense of let's stop what everyone's doing. Let's bring the engineering team into this and work together and decide together what we should build. And let's do it fast. We don't have to have this big, long, drawn-out exploratory design process. We can get right into it, but but we are going to stop and do it, and we're not going to just play sort of catch-up to this, this like turbo-boosted engineering organization. And I think that's a really key thing, too, with design is bringing other people in to the process, especially engineers, that uh, they feel... Um, you know, part of that that design process, participating, not necessarily downstream, makes it a lot easier to to sell ideas if if people are bought in at the very beginning. Totally, and you know, I, I kind of in my last little rant there, I may have sounded like uh, you know a, a little resentment towards engineering, but that's not the case. I, I actually most of my experience with engineers and their ideas for design in my career has been that they have really good ones and they're quite often better than my ideas as a designer. In fact, I found that early in my career, I was put in this situation of like, okay, you're the designer and we trust you to come up with a solution. And they, they probably shouldn't have trusted me. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing and I only had one, you know, I could only come up with sort of one or maybe a couple of ways of thinking about solving the problem. Whereas if you brought everybody in, especially people who look at the problem in different ways, and you, you have everybody solve the problem at the same time in their own way, then you've got all these different paths you might take. So I had this experience at Google a few times where I would design the UI for something and then the engineers would start building it. You know, they trusted me to come up with the right design. And then later on, uh, weeks later, even months later, an engineer would come to me and say, hey, have you considered this part? Have you considered doing it this way? And I would think, man, that's that's better than the way... I was imagining it. And sometimes we would like re, you know, we'd sort of like churn. We'd, I'd say, let's change it. You know, we'd bring in the PM and say, let's just change this thing and go with the engineers 
idea or my version of it or whatever. And that churn is extremely costly to the whole team. You know, if you, if you don't uncover those good ideas in the beginning. So part of the idea with the sprints, yeah, bring people in so they buy in, but also bring them in because they might have the best solution. And I think sometimes with design, and I am certainly guilty of this, there can be a little bit of arrogance. Like we're the ones who know how to do it. We have this magic process. You know, you, you guys don't know how to understand our users, you don't understand design. And it, I actually think that the more I learn about design or the more experience I get, the more I realize I don't know. And design is just a process for uncovering, uh, for learning and for finding out which ideas don't work. Maybe you have to have a lot of good ideas in the beginning because so many of them are going to fail to find the one that actually sticks. So I want as many people in as possible. I think this idea of, of inclusivity and bringing people in early is, is, is so great. And, um, storytelling and storyboarding and sketching are really emphasized in the sprint process. Can you talk a little bit um, about why that's critical and also how to bring in engineers who may be a little bit reluctant to sketch in the beginning? So, yeah, one of the, one of the, I think the biggest things that changed about the design sprint process when I brought my kind of early version of it from Google to Google ventures was this emphasis on story and that really comes from my colleague and co-author Sprint, Braden Coetz, who's just really been focused for as long as I've known him on this intersection of storytelling and design. And for him, it it came, you know, quite naturally. If you think of moving through a product, you you experience it in the same way you experience like a movie or a you know, TV show. It happens. There's a whole sequence of things that happens. It's a little story. It's not one screen standing on its own. You know, Braden talks about it like you don't experience UI like a poster or a billboard. You experience it like a film. And so part of the reason for the storyboarding in the design sprint process and for thinking about the, the flow and sort of the, the way the customer moves through the product is just because that's a more realistic way to look at it. You have to think of the whole story. And, you know, it's sort of a separate topic we could dive into. But one of the key things in the sprint is figuring out what's the most important moment and if you don't think of the product as a story, as a bigger flow, you won't start to think in terms of these moments when you have the, the best chance to make the product successful or maybe the biggest risk. But the other thing that I realized over time from working with all these startups and then reflecting back on my experience previously at, at Google was that the, the marketing is so important. The way you tell the story is so important. And in fact, it's it's actually the most important thing because if you can't explain what your new product or service is, if it doesn't make sense to people, if you're just adding a feature to an existing product, if it doesn't make sense to people why they would use it, if there's no story around it, then there's really no point. And so many products fail or succeed based on how well they, they tell that story. So I also really wanted teams to start thinking of that story and how they were going to explain what they did almost more than they thought about the, the intricacies of the interaction design itself, because it matters more. But finally, yeah, you, you asked about how to get engineers or anybody who's uncomfortable with sketching into it. And all of this, you know, flowery language that I just talked about with stories and why they're so important. It doesn't really matter if you can't get people to, to do it, to sit down and sketch. So the idea with the sprint was on Tuesday when we did these individual sketches that I wanted to break down the sketching process into like a small of a, of a 
kind of atom as possible so that each step along the way would feel unintimidating. You'd never ask somebody to come in in the morning and just give them a sheet of paper and say, you know, sketch me a, a spec for this, for this new product. You kind of lead people along piece by piece. And that starts with showing them how designers think about elements. We do that with lightning demos and kind of patterns and recipes that are out there in the world, how to reuse those. And then we kind of go through step-by-step with with note-taking and sketching ideas before we work up to building out that storyboard. And I think that element of taking things apart piece by piece, that's something I learned from David Allen's Getting Things Done. And it's it's really powerful. You know, if you if you break something down into pieces, it becomes unintimidating. Do sprints work for any type of design problems or are there edges to what a sprint can deliver? Well, I'm I'm tempted to say they work for anything, <laughs> but but they I think they probably are are edges to it. It works, I'll tell you, it works a lot better than I thought it did at first. My my initial kind of hope with this was to come up with something that would work for consumer software over and over again. I felt like if I could come up with a process that we could use at Google every time we're building a consumer software product, that would be amazing. And if if they could change the way Google built consumer software products, that would be huge. And so I actually, my my kind of goal for it was probably too uh, too small. I think it, it when I came to Google Ventures and we started doing it with consumer software products and it, it worked. And so that was cool because I like it, it worked outside of Google. So already I was surprised. And then when, you know, we had companies in the portfolio who were doing healthcare, who were doing robotics, you know, retail, all kinds of different things. And so eventually in order to help those companies, it just made sense to try doing a sprint, but my expectations were pretty low. And in fact, it worked. It's proved to work for all kinds of companies and since the books come out, I hear stories about it working in large companies and in manufacturing. And I just heard about a guy who, uh, he sent me a, an email last night. He said, I just used a sprint to, to kind of plan for my move to a new apartment. And like, there, there's, I don't know what that looked like, but there's all kinds of ways, I guess, to apply it. I think that to talk though about where the edges are, I think it's really when a problem is too small, that's one edge. So if you... You know, if you do a, if you think of doing a sprint when you're at the point when you really should just be implementing or when you're really just tweaking something and it's not a good use of everyone's time to clear their schedule, that's definitely one edge. And the other edge is, I think, figuring out like a vision for a new business. And I, I think there's probably some kind of recipe that could exist to help people come up with those new business opportunities, but to imagine that you're going to use a design sprint, you're going to go in and have no idea how to start your business. I hear people ask that question quite a bit, and I don't have confidence that the product is going to is going to find you like a good business. It might tell you where the problems are with an idea that you already do have, or it might help you take some risks and prove out an idea. But I do think you have to come in with some sense of here's an opportunity, here's a challenge that we want to go after. I think you can't go in with a blank slate. So you mentioned that um, you were surprised at the different types of companies um, other than consumer software that, that sprints could work with. And during your, your time at Google Ventures, I'm sure you got to work with a lot of different verticals. But can you tell us a little bit about the, the, your perspective on the role that design plays and kind of some of the trends in these, in these different verticals um, from what you saw at your time at GV? 
Yeah, I think it's different everywhere. And I, I guess, you know, it comes as no surprise to anyone that design has become more and more important. Every year it continues to become more and more important in making products successful because there's this rising expectation about how, how high quality a product should be before you are even going to give it a chance. You know, if you imagine trying out a new, you know, a new app or new service, imagine you're going to try out a new bank. You need to find a new bank and you look around at, you know, there's a bunch of different apps and services and tools and you're going to start making judgments about the way the thing looks. If you install their app, you're going to start making judgments about how, even how smooth the transitions are just because you know that a high quality product should look high quality. And there's, there's a high expectation for that today. So everybody knows, and increasingly this is spreading to more and more industries that they just, they have to build high quality products. But to me, that is kind of an uninteresting part of design, you know, making things sort of higher and higher polish. It's, it's, it, it matters, it's valuable, but it's not the most interesting part. The most interesting part is in how design shapes the business, like whether the business exists, whether some new venture thing they're going to try out is going to work or not. And in, in that, you know, sort of realm, I think design is increasingly people are seeing it as a way to try out ideas, to test the validity of ideas, to, to get, you know, bring teams together and share information across, you know, someone who's maybe, more of the product person on the team and someone who's like the engineering expert who understands what the technology can do. And I think the unique role that design plays, and you know, I, I saw it more and more, and of course we were trying to encourage this at GV through using the design sprint process as a way for teams to see that this is true. Design is a way for teams to envision what their future product might look like really quickly. And that goes beyond what we traditionally think of as design, the way things look and how they work into how the business works. Because you can make that end result. You can sort of fake the future of what your business might look like through design tools. And, you know, we have tools today that can, I mean, and, you know, no pun intended, you guys are affiliated with Envision. And I said, you can envision the future with it, but it actually is it's totally true. Like what you can do with design in terms of prototyping and simulating what a finished highly sophisticated service or business can do is, is remarkable today. And it, it wasn't like that, you know, in, in 1999 when I started doing design professionally. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of an amazing, amazing tool. And then I also think that the, this sort of simple tools that design has been using for ages to you know, going out and talking to customers, showing customers prototypes, it's incredibly powerful for validating that story of an idea. Does an idea make sense to people? And starting to understand if you're explaining what you're doing well, if it matters to people. So that that sense of what design can do, I think, is spreading, but it's it's not as far along as that sense of like how high quality the product should be. I mean, that's getting really pervasive. I think the sense of what design can do is, it's definitely out there and spreading, but you don't see that as much. And so if I talk to a company who's in a competitive field and, you know, it's, it's a field where they're not, nobody's done that yet. That's a huge competitive advantage to them. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. 
Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities. Buy as many user licenses as you need and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. I think Fake the Future should be uh, a band name. Maybe you could, you could start that band. <laughs> At uh, least an album. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Seriously. Um, so designers are getting this, uh, you know, they understand the value of their work. And it's not just about making things look good, but also, you know, creating market value, all those things you just described. Um, how do we as designers start to communicate that more effectively inside of our organizations and hopefully get other key stakeholders bought into the sprint process in general? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. That question of how to sort of spread design. And I, the sprint in and of itself, the sprint process was my attempt to spread the way I thought design ought to be done at Google, within Google. And then and then it was something that we very intentionally were trying to use to spread the, you know, what we were just talking about, the power of design to affect the course of a business in our startups at Google Ventures. And so I do think that the sprint in and of itself, in many cases, is a great vehicle for introducing people to a different way of thinking about design, about talking to customers, because it's in this relatively small package. So five days compared to, you know, like the course of building and launching a successful business is pretty small, but it's still a big commitment. And it's a big commitment for any team to say, we're going to clear five days to try this thing out. And so uh, I think that, you know, there's a few ways to answer this question that I usually give. And one is you can, you know, make a case for the sprint and there's a bunch of different ways you can make the case for that. And in the book I talk about, you know, you can sort of, make a case for how you're going to 
handle all of the meetings that you're going to miss during that time. You can make a case for, you know, that we're going to build a prototype really quickly. And for some folks, for some teams, that's what's really compelling. That was originally what was compelling at Google about it was the idea that we're going to, we're going to get really quickly to a point where we have a prototype. And sometimes that stuff is compelling and you can make different kinds of arguments. You can just appeal to people's you know, you can be honest and say, I think we're moving too slow. And I think that this, we're, we're not using our time well. And I think this might help. But I think when people ask this question, what they really, they need more than that. And I've seen some examples where in the best case, when an organization adopts this, when they do a sprint or two at their company, and there starts to be a story about sprints that's in the company, and that story gets spread, uh, then you'll suddenly see this radical shift. I talked to one company where they they had run a couple of sprints somebody got really excited about it on their product team and then as sort of a top down thing and in their organization they ran they had eight teams or excuse me 10 teams running sprints week after week after week for eight weeks so they just canceled everything they were doing and just ran sprints and so their team you know in the course of a couple of months had done 80 sprints and all of a sudden it was just like took over the whole organization that kind of thing can happen, but what's more often the case is that in the beginning, you you have one person who needs to convince others. And there's actually a really great exercise that this agency in Berlin, who I've worked with a bit, called AJ and Smart, uh, they came up with this exercise called the Lightning Decision Jam. And it's like a, I think it's like a half hour, one hour activity where you bring a team together and you say, look, we need to make a decision about, you know, X, Y, or Z, something that's that's really an issue on the team. And it's just a set of activities kind of taken from the sprint and taken from, you know, these are these are not all brand new ideas, but put together in a recipe where in the course of an hour, you'll very quickly move through this decision-making process, idea generation process, and come to a conclusion. And they said that in their experience, this activity does such a nice job of being a microcosm of what happens in a sprint that it helps people understand what the difference is when you work in a structured way and when you apply some of these ideas about teamwork in a structured way. And so I definitely have started encouraging people to check out that post and try applying that recipe because it's it's so good and it's such a nice small way to let people experience the real kind of power of the sprint is that you're saying, we're not going to just let our time sort of congeal together. We're just going to like intentionally design it. We're going to use it in a very specific way that we know will yield a good result. So we can focus on solving the problem and not how to get there. And this conveys that idea better than anyone can do sort of trying to vocalize it or verbalize it. So it sounds like for a designer to kind of step up and take initiative and, and run a sprint is, is one way to be seen as a leader in their, in their organization. Are there other ways that you've run across for, um, or other types of skills for designers to cultivate, to attain that, that more leadership status? I think that one of the most important things that designer, really anyone can learn to do, and I, I wish I had keyed in on it earlier in my career, but I think that writing and giving presentations are the most powerful part of of our work today and if we if you work with a team if you can do those two things you can always get better at doing those two things and as you get better and better at them 
then the other work that you do is just magnified and multiplied. So if I can do, you know, my, I do my design work, I do my job that I'm assigned to do, but if I can then explain it in a clear way to the rest of the team, if I understand how to, how to both write about it, you know, to blog about it, to, to put together a presentation that tells the story about why I'm, why we're doing this, who's it for, why does it matter? That's, you know, that's a way to be seen as a leader within the team, but it's also a way to, that it, it goes both ways. So like you, you start to think in terms of stories and explaining things and that, that writing and that sense of storytelling comes back into your design work. And it's only natural that as people get better and better at articulating their thoughts and, you know, I'm a bit of a rambler as if anyone who's listened to this podcast and made it through this far as you can tell, <laughs> I'm a bit of a rambler. So I always benefit from having the chance to prepare what I say, you know, in, in text or in a slide deck before I start to start talking off the cuff. And, uh, and the, the more you do that, you just, you start to look, you start to appear like, you know, what you're doing more, you know, and that's the callous way to look at it. It really does make the quality of the work better. And it really does help the team understand better what's going on. But also it's just in a very callous way. Like you, you look like, you know, what you're talking about. And as you build confidence in communicating, that's, that is, I think what, what we need from leaders, you know, we need them to, to mentor us. We need them to have expertise in their, in their skills. Those things are important, but I actually think the most important thing for a leader to be able to do is to articulate that vision for what we're, what we're doing, to be able to explain what we're doing, to be able to think things through, synthesize information into a story. So whenever someone's like a starting out as a designer or at any point as a designer, and they ask me, what books should I, you know, are there any books you recommend? And, uh, you know, I, I tell them sprint, of course, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, but after that, no, but, the, but actually the, the book that was the most important to me as a designer was made to stick by Chip and Dan Heath. And it's about storytelling, about telling a story that's people remember that they care about. And I think it's that way of thinking is so, so important. So that's, I think that's where there's the biggest room to, um, to be, you know, to learn, to be a leader and the, the biggest sort of opportunity to differentiate yourself. It does seem that uh, your process and your former colleagues at GV, um, Braden, John, uh, Daniel uh, as well, that writing is an important part of what you guys do. And I'm curious if that is uh, part of the thinking process that you guys kind of naturally gravitate towards, or if uh, there's some other benefits that you guys have gotten over the years of writing about your process, about sharing that, whether it's in a very formal, wonderfully packaged uh, book, or if it's uh, a quick collection of thoughts on Medium. How, how does writing fit into the design process? Well, I'm I'm sort of not the best person to answer this in some ways, and I mean I can I can't answer it in others, but I didn't think a lot about writing as part of the design process until I got to Google Ventures. And I was really interested in writing and I had been working on this. I've been working on this adventure novel for years now. And I had started doing that before coming to GV, but I didn't, that was like fiction. I didn't think about this crossover between writing and design. I was, I often thought, and I had read Made to Stick and, you know, I was thinking about this notion of storytelling and of how do you, how do you tell the story about what you're doing? But that always for me took the form of, presentations, and then also things like the the flow within a product when you came in and moved through step by step. 
what was what was that story like but i didn't think about words that much and i think in watching john zaraski who's has a background in journalism the way he thinks about approaching a problem he's he's really thinking about the words first what's the headline what you know when he sketches up a design for you know in a sprint he was thinking about the words and to him, the words mattered most. And I started to see over time as we did sprint after sprint after sprint that so often John's ideas would, would not only be the ones that seemed the most appealing on the wall, but they would, they would then also become the most successful when we tested them. And it was because he was spent like 90% of his time just thinking about the words, you know, the design was not, you know, I'm sure Jay-Z, if he's listening, would not be offended if I said his design itself was not always the most clever or, you know, like beautiful or anything, but it made the most sense. He was able to explain what's going on here. And I just started to realize like, oh my God, that is actually the most important part. And as, as he put it to me, he's like, look, if you look at a, any UI, you basically can boil it down to, to text. It's like, there's rectangles, sometimes a few icons, but the most important part of what we look at on any screen anywhere is, is the words. And if you get those words right, you've accomplished most of what has to happen. And so I think that starting off on paper where you can't get caught up in the visual design of things, you can't get too caught up in the, the layout and how the you know components are going to work and thinking about the words and even starting off your design process. And I think this is the most important trick by designing the marketing for the thing and figuring out what's the headline going to look like on the app store or on our website. And what are the sub headlines going to be? What are people going to care about as they go through this? It's really the way to infuse writing into the, into the process. Anyway, I could go on about how kind of our path as a team to writing, but I'll pause there mid ramble. <laughs> No worries. So, uh, Aaron, and I were curious. What what was behind your decision to leave Google Ventures? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, there's one big thing, and then I guess there's a million little things. But the big thing is that I had been wanting to write for a long time, and it's sometimes you start doing something, and it if you give energy to it, it grows. You know, it's like a like you're feeding the feeding the beast and and so for me starting to write something that I wanted to do when I was a kid and kind of got to this point in high school and college where I was so disappointed with the quality of my writing that I gave it up which really in hindsight makes me like that's kind of my the one thing I would have done over I've been very lucky in the way my career and things have worked out so well for me but there's one thing that I would have shifted it's that I, I shouldn't have given up on writing that time. But I really kind of set it down for you know, like 15 years because I wasn't satisfied with what I was doing. And if you if you ever want to like see the advice I should have taken at that time, uh, there's a great video of Ira Glass on YouTube. It's it's kind of a, a crummy old video, but if you search for, I think, Ira Glass on storytelling on current TV, there's a series of videos of him. And in one of them, he he talks about how it's so hard when you start off doing something because you, if, if you have good taste, you can tell that what you're making isn't that good. And, and he plays a clip of himself doing a radio show. So Ira Glass from uh, This American Life. And he's, if, you know, if anyone hasn't heard of that, it's a super successful radio program and podcast. It's usually like, 
if cereal isn't in action, you know, this American life is usually the number one podcast. And so he plays this clip of him at like age, you know, 29 or 30, he's been in radio for 10 years and it's him doing this like little news snippet. And it's just terrible. Like he's, he's making fun of himself as he plays it because it's so bad. And he says, look, like it takes a really long time to get, to get good at, this craft. And if you're, if you know that what you're doing is not that good, it can be really frustrating, but you can't give up. You have to just keep making a bulk of work because it takes so many reps before your quality bar gets up to your taste. And, and I didn't, I gave up, you know, I, I saw that what I was doing wasn't good. I stopped and years went by. And then I finally, for whatever reason, I don't even remember what spurred me to do it, but I decided, you know, I'm going to, going to give us a shot again. And I started writing on my own. And then when I came to GV, and this actually does connect to the previous question, we were trying to tell the story of Google Ventures publicly, which was much different. I mean, at Google, there was no thought as I was doing product work about like, how do we build the reputation of Google design outside? Like we weren't thinking about that. We were just like trying to build products. But at GV, we really, we were this new venture fund. People were kind of skeptical of us and we had to build this reputation. So we, we were blogging. And then all of a sudden I was doing this other kind of writing and our whole team through this process of wanting to share what we were doing and build our reputation was learning how to write kind of together. I mean, we were, there were, there were good writers on the team and every single person, Michael Margolis, Braden, John, Daniel, Kristen, who came onto our team later on, all great writers, but we also kind of together learned how to, how to, you know, how to get there and how to, how to be better at it. And so over the course of being at GV, writing obviously became like, I was writing more and more blog posts and then writing the book. And I continued working on this other project. And this, this beast of writing, it just was growing and growing. The more energy I put into it, the more time I spent writing, the more it felt like that was where I needed to be spending my time. And I had kind of gotten into design almost accidentally in the first place, although I really enjoy it. It's not like it's this, this deep passion of mine. And so I kind of realized that a lot of what was in there that I loved could could come from writing and that it was a much bigger challenge for me now to to try to build a career as a writer is it, it seemed much harder and more interesting than continuing to be a, a designer so the primary thing was like realizing that there was a thought in my head that sort of this frame of mind or mindset about writing that it was crazy that it was a crazy idea as a person who had a job and had a career that they've been doing for almost 20 years, had a family, like quit their job and become a writer. Like that was like, almost this like embarrassingly like terrible idea to do, especially having written a business book, which, you know, to think that like, you're going to translate that into a career as a writer was kind of crazy. And I realized like that's in there. I'm afraid of doing it. And that reason, like that other people will think it's silly or that I might fail at it. Those are dumb reasons. I would tell anyone else, like, don't listen to those outside concerns and don't, you know, take the risk. It's not as risky as you think. You can always go back to some design job, you know, if, if, if you wanted to. So I guess it just, it kind of came down to realizing like, okay, that's a real thing. And then, sorry, this is a long answer, but coupled with that, my, my father had passed away uh, recently and I was just thinking about life is not that long and you have to, you have to make the most of it. I didn't want, I didn't want to look back 10 years or 20 years from now and think, you know, I wish I had done that. I wish I had given that a chance. And I wonder what would have happened if I had. 
And my parents had kind of modeled for me this idea of doing kind of crazy things. They left their sort of safe, normal life in Seattle and moved to this little island and kind of had to cobble together this life that was true to what they wanted to do, which was live on a farm in kind of the middle of nowhere. And so that's what I grew up with. And I thought, you know, I need to, I need to step back and kind of question everything that's all these kind of defaults that are around me and, and try to be more true to what I want to do. So that was kind of the, that was kind of the, you know, that's the story of it. And, uh, and the time I guess was just, was just right. So, so here I am. And kudos to you for making that transition because it's hard, you know, to take a leap and try a new thing, especially if that thing might not be uh, already built into your identity, right? You, you make this transition and you have to forge this new identity for yourself. Um, and it seems like th there are a lot of folks in the industry that Eli and I have spoken with uh, sort of behind the scenes that they get to a certain point in their life and they realize, um, I need to try a new thing. I need to do something new, but it seems too scary to take that risk. So um, I think seeing people like you make that jump and be public about it is admirable and, and important. Oh, well, thanks. I, you know, I want to make sure I don't, it's, I think the hardest thing in it is, is walking away from the, the external things that I was used to. The idea that you talk to somebody, I, I kind of freaked out right after leaving when I was traveling to another country and I had to write in a customs form, like, you know, you fill out the customs form and you fill out like what your occupation is. And I was like, oh, like I'm so used to writing that I work for Google because no matter where you go around the world, they've heard of Google. And I'm just used to like this kind of feeling of like, I'm in some kind of special club and to say like, I'm a writer, like it was, it was this really weird feeling, but all that stuff is like inside, you know, it's inside my head. And the, you know, the reality is for, for me, the, the risk is not that great. I mean, I could, I could probably get another design job. I think somebody would, would hire me if I, if this turns out to be a disaster and, and I'm still doing a lot of design maybe. work. I'm still teaching work. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll see. Yeah. I don't, I shouldn't count on that too much. I'm still doing a lot of design work. I'm doing some advising with IDEO and I'm doing these teaching these workshops and uh, kind of continuing to spread the word about sprints, but that's all that stuff is a small part of my time now. And, you know, there's, there's still, it's not this total, it's not like I went off into the, into Alaska, you know, and I'm in a cabin somewhere, um, you know, totally cut off, but but making that change internally that redefines who you are or takes away some of those labels that actually give you comfort, it, it can be hard. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's stupid that it's hard, but it was. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair, I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping 
free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Can you talk a bit about uh, the type of work that you're doing with IDEO as a, as a visiting fellow? Yeah, that's a real new thing. So I've really only spent like two and a half days with them so far. I kind of spend a day or two here, there. And the, man, the folks at IDEO are so cool. I had met Tim Brown earlier, actually, when I was starting off thinking about writing the sprint book. And I I went to Tim. I had I had happened to be on a actually I sort of like elbowed my way into this call that there was a an interview that Google for Entrepreneurs, a team that we worked with at GV, they were doing an interview with Tim Brown and Eric Reese. And I was like, oh my God, I would love to meet those two. And so I emailed the person who was putting on the interview and I said, is it would you like, could you include me in the interview? Because I could kind of talk about how what we do intersects with what they do. And she was very kind and and allowed me in. And they were both very, very kind and let me in, even though I had no business really being on a call with those two folks being in an interview with them. But you can see it. It's on YouTube and you'll see, I don't know if you can tell from the call. I hope not, but I was I was super nervous and felt really um I, you know, I really felt like a like a joke big, you know, an imposter up there. But I because of that, I got to meet these these two folks who I really admired, and I both of them have been super generous with their time since then, and and given me a lot of help in kind of trying to forge new paths at different times. But I I t- anyway, I met Tim at that time, and I talked to him about writing the book and the process, and like what if he thought it was worthwhile to write a book and what it had done for IDEO, and also as as you guys know, because you've just written a book and I well three books really. It's it does a lot for your thinking. I mean, it it makes you think in a different way about what you do, and it I think it elevates your thinking about your work. And he talked about that helps you crystallize and explain things better, and sometimes do better work even just through the process of writing it. You know how to do what you're doing better. That certainly happened with Sprint. It's part of why I recommend to people that they focus on writing because you will start to understand what you're doing better. But anyway, Tim said, you know. He, he, he always had something every time I talked to him that would just, I'd walk away thinking, man, I never really thought about things that way. He's a very unusual thinker. And I, I basically am doing this thing at IDO because I had so much respect for Tim before and because I wanted to be exposed to that, you know, that pushing of my thinking that happened every time I talked to Tim. And because every time I walked into IDO, I just felt like there's this amazing kind of buzz or energy there. And I kind of wanted to know, like, how does it, how does it work? Like what goes on behind the scenes there? I mean, I had heard about IDEO forever and kind of admired it, but honestly didn't really understand it very well. And I thought, Hey, here's a chance to kind of peek inside. And then, um, and then hopefully, I mean, if I'm providing benefit to them, it's that I can give a perspective to their clients and their, their teams at IDEO about like, well, look, when, you know, in my experience working with startups and trying to help founders and entrepreneurs along, here's the, the ways that I've found design useful. Or here's how I've seen people handle that kind of challenge. And so that's kind of the exchange. That's kind of the, the system with them is that 
I'm trying to figure out what makes IDEO tick and they're trying to find out what, what made uh, for design at startups tick. So Jake, we want to be respectful of your time and we're getting close to the end of our hour together, but if we did want to give you a chance to talk about your new book, which you're working on. Um, before we get there though, Aaron had mentioned in the beginning that you're self-professed time dork and you got a bit of an obsession about saving time. Can you talk a little bit about that, where that comes from? Yeah, and actually, those those two questions have an intersection. I'm working on two books. I'm trying to finish this this fiction book that I've been working on forever, but I have once again gotten distracted from it by another book. And the book that I'm working on right now, it's kind of it's not announced yet, so this is kind of a it's kind of a secret. If you listen this far into the podcast, you're getting a little a little secret info, but the the book is, well, I have this obsession for a long time with time. And it's, I guess, when I was growing up, you know, I, my father, as I said, he passed away recently and he was older growing up. You know, he's, uh, I was the youngest of seven kids and, and I, I kind of got this sense early on that I needed to sort of notice my time with him, you know, make, make the most of it. And he was someone who thought a lot about time. He thought a lot about how he spent his time outside of, outside of work, about how to make the most of kind of every, every hour and minute. And this all became really crystal clear and focused to me when my oldest son was born. And this is 14 years ago now, but I was working at Microsoft at the time. I took time off. I came back to the office, you know, and I, I was used to being with this newborn baby. And when I came back to the office, I was like, my God, like I, I just kind of do all these things at work by default. I just, you know, people put meetings on my calendar. I say yes, by default, I do my work in this kind of unthinking, just kind of like by default way. And I don't know if I'm always focused. Am I, am I actually here for the reason why I took this job or like the thing that excited me when I signed up or am I just kind of reacting to all these default behaviors because like I had seen even in the course of like the first few weeks of a child's life you see them change and you realize like I don't know it's just this is any any parent knows that it's like this powerful idea that time passes and things change and that every moment really like it only happens once and you got to pay attention to it and so I I never I could never stop seeing things through that lens that time was was really precious, that it was limited, that it was passing by. And I got really interested in kind of trying to craft the way I spent my time, the way I did my design work, the way I managed my you know, sort of productivity while I was at Microsoft. When I came to Google, that transformed into trying to think about how I designed the larger team's time. And that's what ended up being the design sprint. It was all about this sense of can we make better use of time? And can we do the things that really matter most to us? Can we craft time so that it's what we want it to be and we create the moments we want to create? And, you know, I've, I've also done all kinds of weird things in my, you know, sort of non-work life that involve this. I, I have, I have an iPhone and I've always had an iPhone, but I, I don't have Safari on it or email or Facebook or Instagram or any of those things. I have nothing on it that's has like an infinite source of, of distraction for me because I can't resist that distraction and I'll lose 
time to, to that distraction. I'll lose moments when I want to be present with the people around me. And I, you know, I have a, I have a, a timer on my internet that turns the internet off at home. So I have time without that distraction. I've noticed there's just all these defaults in the modern world that try to steal our time basically. And, and if I react to those defaults, then I lose, I lose my initiative. I lose getting to choose the way my life goes. And if I take control of them, if I try to look for them and figure out how to reset them so that they're the defaults I want, then I get a lot more out of life. So that's been a, that's why I, you know, and my, my former colleague, uh, John Zerafsky, he's, he's very into this stuff too. And we spent a lot of time thinking about that as we were developing the design sprint process and things we learned from that. And, uh, and, and so we have this, this blog called time dorks where we write posts about that stuff. And the book that is currently distracting me from uh, this fiction novel, which will get done eventually is that I thought it would be interesting to, you know, if, if Sprint is a book about how a team can redesign their time for a week, I thought it'd be interesting to think about how an individual can redesign their time each day and look at some of those defaults and break them down and then rebuild the, the way we want to spend our time in a realistic way, given all of the demands of modern life, in a realistic way, take back control and initiative and and notice more of the moments and joy that that happen each day. So that sounds kind of it's kind of a uh, you know a, a new age tech nerds version of getting things done or the happiness project. Um, but we'll see we'll see if it comes together. That's my my quest is to to write a book like that. That's super exciting. Um, I I know I could use that book. I have an almost two year old and and a, and a, and a six year old, and I certainly feel out of time most days and wish I had more time. Them, <laughs> yeah. So I could use that book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What if you uh, if anybody's interested? If you go to jakenap.com, you can sign up for for updates as soon as as soon as there are any. But uh, but I'm optimistic that that something will come together. That's fantastic. Well, Jake. We're, we're getting close to the end, but um, we did want to also give you a quick plug for your upcoming workshop that's going to be in Chicago on uh, September 28th. We're really excited about that. Yeah, me too. And the tickets are vanishing. So it would, if anyone is uh, reading or listening to this now, you should you should act now because that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. And uh, these workshops, the kind of the idea with the workshop, and I've been doing a bunch of these, and this is kind of this thing that I feel fits in really nicely with my writing, actually, because it's a chance to be around people. It's a chance to talk about work and time, which are topics that I love. And what happens in the workshop is we compress a lot of what happens in a sprint into a single day and go through some of the activities. And I can talk about some of the stuff that's not in the book, some of the things that a facilitator needs to know who's running a sprint, or if somebody just wants to take their sprint practice further, we try to go into a little bit more more detail and give people some muscle memory for what it feels like to move through a day, uh, you know, one a one week version of uh, a sprint crammed into a single day. So it's pretty fun, and really looking forward to it. It's first first time in the USA that I'll be doing this, so pretty cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for being on on the design better podcast with us. We really loved having you. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, putting up with my, with my long monologues. And uh, it's great talking to you too. Look forward to next time. Thanks Jake.